ago that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so this phrase of faith without works is dead can feel like it's a little bit uh, counterintuitive to what we see elsewhere in the Bible, especially with what we see Paul talk about. And so it kind of makes you, on, on, first look, on first glance, we're going to have this feeling of what's going on here. Have we found a, a flaw in the Bible? Is there a contradictory uh, kind of thing going on between Paul and James? And it's our goal today to try to understand this passage a little bit better and to see its significance, because not only in its significance in what is James actually saying here, but also I believe it has a huge impact and significance for us today in our walk with Christ. James didn't just put this in there by accident. He was very purposeful in what he did. Now as a prelude to the text, I also want to remind you guys of a few things. We're about to dive in if you want to open your Bibles to chapter 2. But I want to remind you guys that this is the Bible. This is God's Word. And we here at Calvary Chapel... We looked at, uh, at the end of the last year, we believe in sola scriptura. That means we believe that scripture has authority in our lives, that it is true, and it only offers truth to us. And so with that in mind, when we see something that seems contradictory, we have to avoid that impulse to want to skip it. That's one of the downsides of going through the Bible that we do here in this service and in most of the Calvary Chapel services uh, because we can't skip these things. It'd be nice to just kind of say, well, we'll just skip over this or look at it briefly, but we're in it and we're going to look at it and we want to seek to go deeper, to understand this, remembering that we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and that has the authority of God in it. And what James is going to do here, I'll let you guys kind of get a glimpse of what the objective here is, that he's going to lay out, I believe, a very well-constructed argument in regards to our faith. And he's going to have objections, like uh, the objective opinions. He's going to have Bible references and Bible stories. He's going to have examples of both living and dead faith. And with this in view, the plan is to follow his argument in the text as best and as closely as we can. And I, something that was really on my heart as I was preparing as, uh, this is a quite, I believe, a challenging text to prepare for. Uh, it's something that God really put on my heart, is to let the text speak for itself. So we want to let James unfold his argument, and we're going to go through it in that way. And my hope is that we would all kind of have a bit of a clearer perspective on what is James actually saying when he says that faith without works, without deeds, is dead. So let's start by reading through the text We'll read 14, all the way 14 through 26 to start, just so we can see the whole argument at once. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. 
You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without deeds is dead you can see how i was sweating a little bit preparing for this message what is james saying he goes out of his way to make what his key point here is very clear and what is that point that faith without deeds is dead he says Can such faith even save them? What good is it? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without deeds is useless. Again and again throughout the text, he re-emphasizes with a strong emphasis this point. I think we can agree that James sees this as something that's incredibly important for us to get, for us to grasp. James wants you and I and his readers 2,000 years ago to see that faith without deeds is a dead faith, a useless faith, and a faith that cannot save. These are really powerful statements that should stop us in our tracks to want to know what James is saying here. Like I said, we're going to go through his argument, the way he lays it out, So let's look at his opening argument, his opening statement and question. In verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now James is clearly, I believe, addressing a real issue that must have been facing the churches at the time. All of of the letters that were written were written in response to things. And as there's Uh, nothing new under the sun, we can be pretty certain that whatever this issue is, it definitely applies to us today. Things tend to just go in a circle throughout history. So we want to look at this. First, let's break down his, uh, his kind of opening argument here. The problem. He presents the problem. So there were or there are People claiming to have a real faith. He makes that very clear. They're claiming to have a real faith, meaning they claim, they're claiming to be believers in Jesus. They go to church, probably. They look the part. They probably said the right things. They spoke Christianese, as they say. They call themselves Christians. That's not a real word, just to let you guys know. Can't look it up. But 
So they looked the part, but there is no evidence of this in their deeds. So he's saying they claim to have faith, but they don't have deeds. They're, the works of their, in their lives, the deeds, that what they actually do, what's produced, is not in connection with what they're claiming. So the question that he presents is, these people that claim to have this type of faith, where they, they say that they have faith, but there's no action attached to it, can this be a saving faith? Can such faith save them? This is the question that James just throws at us right at the beginning of his argument. People who claim to be Christians but have no action, no deeds in their life, can that faith truly save them? Are they truly saved? Do they belong to Christ? He goes on by giving us an example in verse 15 and through 17. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And that word good could also be what profit does it have or what honor is there in that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now I believe that this, I would hope, is an overtly obvious example. One that you would hope never to actually see. Although I think, again, he seems to be addressing real situations. Things that he probably had heard back. To say, be well fed, be warm. I'll pray for you while you're on the street tonight. While I go home and eat till I'm stuffed and then go to sleep in my nice comfy bed. James is like, how? That's ludicrous. That's insane. What? That is not, that kind of faith is dead. And I think James, again, is going to the extreme with this. But there are definitely smaller examples. And he points out by making the connection with this phrase, in the same way. Meaning, just as this example of telling someone, telling a man, telling a woman to be warm when you have an extra blanket, or to be well-fed when you're throwing away your leftovers, is crazy. He's also saying, in the same way, How crazy is it to to call yourself Christian, to title yourself a believer, a follower of Christ, to say the Christian things and to look like a Christian on the outside, but to have your actions, the way that you actually portray that faith, be totally different. And I think this is also, just as a side note, a, a warning to the rich, which ties in with what we saw in chapter 1 where he gives a warning to the rich and that they should uh, find uh, they should be thankful in their low position meaning don't think too highly of yourself and i think we can be reminded of the importance that when god blesses us when we are given much 
we should then bless much. But staying in line, again, with James' argument, I want to remind you guys that James isn't the only one who has this idea. So we can't just throw it out as an anomaly in the New Testament. Jesus also points to this same image several times, but one in particular, and unfortunately we won't have time to go through it all because I would love to just do a whole message on that. But I want to remind you guys in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And here he presents himself as as king when he comes as king. And he stands and he says to those that are his, to his sheep, those who belong to him. He claims them as his own and says, it's because you fed me. Because you gave me clothes when I was naked. Because you visited me when I was in prison. Because you took me in when I had nowhere to go. And of course, they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We, we never did those things. When did we do those things for you? And he says in verse 40 of 25, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. It's important to Christ the way that we present ourselves as his followers. And he makes this distinction because we have the other side, those that aren't taken in to his fold, aren't taken in as his sheep. And he says to them that you didn't feed me when I was hungry. You walked around. You ignored me when I was in prison. You didn't visit me. You didn't take me in when I had no place to go. And of course, they're as equally bewildered. They have no idea what he's talking about. When did we not do those things, Jesus? King Christ, when did we not do those things? He says, when you didn't do it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you didn't do it for me. And then he says to those on his left, depart from me. So this idea of works and this idea of the separation of those, and I believe what Jesus is talking about here is not those in the world. I think he's talking about those who have the image, have the idea of Christianity, but there's no deeds, there's no works, there's no fruit in their life. Serving the least of these is so important to Jesus. And James is re-emphasizing this. A lot of the book of James, you'll notice, mirrors the words of Christ, especially in his sermons. This is a part of the works of the deeds of a true Christian life. Now, here it gets kind of heavy because some of you, some of us might be thinking, I don't, I didn't give to anybody this week. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I did enough. I don't, what do I need to do then to, to show that I'm a true Christian? What do I have to do? And others, others of you might be thinking, 
This sounds a lot like works-based salvation. And I'm pretty sure Paul would have some pretty harsh words to say against what you're saying right now. Well, before you make a list of all the things that you need to do this week to check off to make sure that you're Christian enough, I think we need to kind of define this idea of deeds, of works, of actions that come from a saving faith. And then I also want to take just a moment, in a, a little bit later we'll take a moment and look at a small comparison between James and uh, Paul, even though there are many we could look at. But first, I want to encourage you guys to not be discouraged. To not look at your life and think of all the things that you haven't done if you feel like I, that you haven't done enough, there's hope for us. Because God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for progress. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. As we've mentioned many times here, we have a walk with Christ. He uses the example of our daily, a daily walk to daily take up our cross and follow Him. It's not a... We're instantly at the finish line. We get there step by step. And so it's not about uh, where we are now. It's about where we're going. God expects progress. We're not now or ever will be perfect in this life, and that's okay. We don't have to achieve perfection. We don't have to serve enough. So how then can we best define works? I think it's very simple. In the greatest commands, love God and love people. Love God, love people. And James points this out all through, all that we've gone through so far. He's always emphasizing the importance of loving people. And so I can't imagine that he's suddenly changed his mind in what he's saying here. That we need to love people. We looked at it last in our last text with how, how important it is to him to not show favoritism, that we don't look better on some and less on others based off of their uh, money or their education or their social status. It's important that we truly love one another. And Jesus in Matthew 22, 36 through 39 lays it out. I'll just hit the highlights. Jesus is saying this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We looked a lot at love your neighbor as yourself in our last message in James. The point is that all deeds, all works, everything that comes out of a living faith is based in these two things. Loving God with everything we are and loving people doesn't mean that we're going to do that always perfectly. doesn't mean that it's always going to look as good as we'd like. But again, there, this, is the, this is the real uh, measure of progress. Not how many people did I serve, how, how many people did I help this week, but did I love people this week? And did I love God? Did I glorify God this week? So there is no list You can't do enough. 
Because it's not really about what we do, it's why we do it. It's where it's coming from. I can't give enough money or serve enough soup or give out enough blankets. If I'm trying to earn something, I'm always going to fail. And this is not what Christian works are. Real Christian deeds are always out of a love for God and a love for people. Not necessarily always liking people or getting along with everyone all the time. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about loving people to really have a heart for people. And James clears up this argument, I think, even more and as, as we continue in his uh, unfolding in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. This is one of my favorite uh, key uh, phrases in this whole text. I will show you my faith by my deeds. So it's not about doing enough. It's about having a faith that demands action. It's about a change in our hearts. Real faith comes with a changed heart. And that changed heart produces deeds. Ezekiel 36, 26, God promises this to us as believers today. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We have been given a heart to love, to love God, which is our our new spirit connected to him, the Holy Spirit that lives within us, and a heart to love others. A heart of flesh, not of stone, not, as, not that's selfish or self-centered, that's cold towards everyone else's needs, but warm. And again, if you're looking at your life and thinking, I don't know if I do that enough, it's not about a number. It's not about how much you do it. It's about where you're headed. And that can start right now today. So don't count your deeds or try to add them up. Instead, cling to Jesus. Because real belief or real faith doesn't require works. It doesn't require works to be real. That the works demands action. Real belief demands action. Sometimes, I, I will be honest with you guys, I am a slow learner. I change slowly. My Christian walk with God has not been a rapid, you know, it's not been fast moving. The pace has been slow and steady. And that's okay. It doesn't, some people are going to have radical changes and and you're going to see just huge, uh, dramatic changes in the way they live their lives. And for others, it's going to be very gradual. But as we cling to Christ, as we look to Him, this action becomes a part of who we are. The way we see people is with a love that's been shown to us through Christ. And we want to then show that to others. This is the cause and effect of true faith. Now here, before we continue in James, 
uh, argument. I, I want to take this, this moment to, as I said, pause and kind of do a comparison here with James and Paul. Some of you might be thinking, I still feel like this is contradicting some things that Paul says. If we look at Ephesians uh, 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul's very clear, and there are many more examples we could look at. Romans 4 would be another big one. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then if we compare that with verse 24 of our text today, where James says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It feels a little bit like what's happening here. (laughs) It kind of feels like Paul and James are talking about two very different things when it comes to our salvation. But I would argue that we have a kind of unique perspective with James. James is coming at this from a different angle. So we get an alternative perspective to the exact same truth of saving faith that is found only through Jesus Christ that we see Paul so adamantly uh, express. There are two things that we have to consider. One is that Paul and James are writing to different people. James is writing this letter to Jewish believers. And so where they're coming from, there was a lot of, well, I don't have to obey the law anymore. I can do what I want. And they were maybe clinging into groups, into these kind of Christian cells where they weren't reaching out. They weren't doing anything for the homeless. They weren't doing anything. And he's saying, are you sure you, are you, sure you really belong to Christ? Whereas Paul is coming from a different angle and really wanting to be very clear that it is not what you do. You can't sacrifice enough because he was talking mostly to the Greek world, the Gentiles, and they had, they had these kind of ideas of what they needed to do for the gods. And he's saying, no, no, you are saved by grace. So there, that's one thing we have to keep in mind. And I, come up, I think of the, the image of, I don't know, this is a, something that I've heard. I don't even know where I've heard it, but... There's uh, this image of an elephant in a room, and then you put three blind men in the room. You put one at the front, one at the back, and one at the side, and then they have to discuss what's in front of them. Well, obviously, they're probably going to disagree. They're going to maybe get into some arguments about what's in front of them. They're all going to have very different ideas of the thing that they are feeling in front of them. The one at the front is going to be fearful of this mighty thing, this, the, the long trunk and the tusk and the teeth and the mouth, and it's quite intimidating. At the side, it's going to be a little bland, but massive. The guy at the back is probably just complaining about being in that room and just wanting to leave immediately. I've seen elephants. You don't want to stand behind them. So I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing them describe the same thing from very different angles, which is why it can feel like they're talking about different things. But if we look at this idea that James says here, faith without deeds is dead. So you, if you have a living faith, there's going to be deeds. But he's coming at it from the other side. He's saying, uh, if you don't see the deeds, if you don't see the fruit then we have to ask, is the faith real? And Jane, or, uh, sorry, Paul, 
Paul in, ah, in Ephesians uh, 2.10. I use this verse because it fits right in with what we, how he's continuing in his thought in Ephesians 2. Although, again, there are many more examples. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Your salvation is only through faith in Jesus that they, I believe, both agree on, totally apart from anything you do. You can't earn anything uh, in in regards to your salvation because you weren't there when Jesus took your sins on the cross and he did it once and for all. You didn't do anything. You weren't there. You didn't help him. And so there's nothing you can do in that sense to earn it. But... As we are changed, as we do have this new heart, in our accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord, there are works that have been prepared for us to do. And in that living faith, you'll see those works beginning to be played out in your life. James and Paul are coming at this from two different sides, but the result is the same. That real faith that is freely given and received, we freely get it, was freely given to you, produces action. And we'll see James' example of this at the end. First, let's get back to James' next uh, level of his argument in verse 19, where he's warning us and also giving us another example of a dead faith. That is another one I think we have to be warned about. I feel, especially in Western culture and in Germany, maybe uh, in particular in some ways, So verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What is he talking about here? He's talking about intellectual faith that has no relationship with Christ, that has no heart. It's good doctrine. He says even the demons believe that there's one God. It's good to believe that there's one God. There's not many gods. There's one God that we worship. He's saying that's good. It's a good thing. So do the demons. And their doctrine is way better than yours. Perfect. They know the Bible well. Intellectually, they understand more about God than any of us ever will. That's not enough. It's good to believe that. It's good to have good doctrine. But it's not enough. We need a changed heart. Here, I'll do another very old school analogy that I grew up with. The analogy of the chair, I don't know if you've heard this. If not, I'm about to blow your mind. The rest of you, you're like, I've heard this one. Yeah, thank you. It's already blown. That our faith in Christ is like a chair. And when it comes to the difference between our intellectual faith and a real changed faith, is that I can look at this chair and I can believe in the chair I can believe that it has the ability to hold me when I sit in it. I can trust that anybody who sits in that, it will hold up. I can trust that the chair you're sitting in is holding you up. But the difference becomes when there comes this point where I have to sit in the chair. I can't just understand the chair. I can't just understand how the frame is and how it works and how it was designed Eventually, I have to sit in it. That's what James is saying. It's not enough to just wrap your, try to wrap your brain around a doctrine or 
understand it in an intellectual way. That is a part of it. We want to love the Lord our God with our mind. We definitely don't want to exclude our minds. That's another danger. Uh, Sometimes I think in a lot of new movements of kind of uh, subtracting your intellectual understanding of, of the Bible. But it's not enough in itself. Eventually, I have to sit in the chair. So how do we move then from an intellectual faith to a living, active faith? Well, it starts with loving God and clinging to Christ. But when it, the difference between intellectually understanding this and walking into a living, active faith is when I don't just understand that Jesus can save me, but I, sh- I know that I need him to save me. I see my need for Christ, and I cry out to him because of it. I am desperate for you, Jesus. I need you. I need you. I'm lost without you. I'm dead in my sin and my trespasses without you. This is the difference. It's not that I just believe or understand that he is able to do it, that he's able to save you or me, but that I believe he has, that his work on the cross was enough for me. And I know that I need it. I'm not enough. I'm not enough without him. That's when it becomes the point where we sit down in trust of him. Now, James' concluding argument gives us two examples, the one of Abraham and of Rahab. Well, first I want to focus on Abraham. He says in verse 21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, this is a really... Also a very powerful and hard story to navigate. You see, God gave Abraham a promise. We've talked a lot about God's promise to Abraham. And what's really interesting about Abraham, that he uses Abraham, that we don't have time to really get into, is that in Romans 4, Paul also uses it to kind of, again, kind of describe the elephant from the other side in a different way. And he uses a different part of the story. Because Abraham was first given this promise, and he believed what God told him. God said, you will be the father of many nations, that your descendants will be like the stars. Now, this is a cool promise, but this was also to a man who was already up there in age and had no children, and his wife was barren. So, here is where we see Abraham, or we see the passage in in Genesis where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God right then. He had an active, living faith. And then God tests his faith first by making him wait for many, many years before he sees any sign of a fulfillment of this promise which for many of us, I think, would already be uh, a breaking point. It's so hard when we have these long stretches where we believe or we know that God has spoken to us about what we're called to do or what he be- we feel he's leading us into, and then nothing. And then another year, and nothing happens, and another year, and nothing happens. 
And our faith can be really tested in these moments of waiting. But Abraham believed God. He believed him. He knew what God said would happen. And this was credited to him as righteousness. This is Paul's point. James takes the other, uh, the other end of the story because then, after all this time passed, he's finally blessed with a son. And he knows that God has called this son through him would this promise be fulfilled. What God had told him so many years ago, through this son, his, would he have would he be father, the father of many nations where we see the birth of the people of Israel? He knew it though. And then God does something very interesting. In the midst of the years of joy, of experiencing the, the life with his son, of seeing God's promise fulfilled, God says for him to go and to sacrifice his son on this mountain. So Abraham believed God, but now there is a test of action. He believed in what God had said. He believed in the chair. Now God is asking him to sit in it, to do something. This is insane to wrap our brains around. That after all this time, God finally grants him uh, this, this son, and now God is telling him to sacrifice him. But he knows that God is not a liar. He knows that God is always true to his word. He knows that the promise that he gave him would be fulfilled no matter what. And I think this is really shown clearly in Genesis 22, verse 8. And here we see he is, he's been told by God to do this. So he packs up, he takes his son, they've got the wood, they've got the fire, they've got everything they need, they've got the rope, and they start to head out, and his son's like, uh, Dad, are we forgetting something? We don't have a lamb, we don't have anything to sacrifice. And here I think we see most clearly Abraham's faith demonstrated. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went off, went on together. I don't know exactly what was going on in Abraham's mind in this moment. But I believe in my own heart that he did not believe his son was going to be dead by the end of the day. He didn't know how. He didn't understand it. But he knew that God's word was true. No matter whether he understood it or not, his faith, his trust in God was greater than that in himself. Abraham knew whatever happened, God was not going to go back on his word. He would fulfill his promise and it would be through this son. Maybe he thought... Maybe he thought God will stop me, as he did. God stopped him. Maybe he thought somehow his son would be resurrected. Maybe he thought, I don't know what he thought. But I know that he knew God was still going to be faithful, even though he didn't understand how. 
His faith in God was so great, his belief in his promise was so concrete in his heart that it demanded action and obedience. Irregardless of his ability to intellectually understand it in his own life. And God was faithful. God did answer his call or fulfill his call. He did answer and fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham. I want to last, we'll look quickly at Rahab to again stay with the text. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now this is an interesting story as well. We don't have as much time to get into it. If you don't know, Rahab helped the spies that were looking out, uh, or kind of looking through the city of Jericho. And Rahab helped them, lodged them, and then lowered them down uh, the wall out, out, to, out of the city and saved them. And she says to them, remember me, remember me. Now what's interesting here is that she really had no reason to do this except for a really great faith that demanded action. Because in the natural, it would have been much smarter for her to turn them in. There would have probably been a reward. She probably would have been praised for potentially saving the city. But she had heard the stories of this God of Israel. She heard of what he had done. She heard of his greatness. And her faith was more in that God, that foreign God to her, than the reality of what was right in front of her. And this faith was so great that it demanded action. And now, this this prostitute in this foreign city, foreign to the Israelites, is a part of the family of God. Because of her faith. A faith that produced action. Now in closing, I want to encourage you guys again. It's not the actions that save you. They are the result of our salvation. God is not looking for a filled out list or holding us to some perfect standard that we have to achieve in order to belong to Him, or order, in order to be called real Christians. He's looking for progress in our lives. He's looking for us to be moving closer to Him. As we cling to Him, as we love God, and as we love people. Because He's looking for a relationship with us. And it's through that relationship with Jesus Christ and our expressed need for Him. Again, when we, it's not just intellectually understanding it, it's knowing that I need Christ in my life. That action and obedience will always follow. I want to leave you guys with a great analogy, one of my favorite analogies. I know I say that a lot, but... This really is one of my favorite passages. I even have it hanging on my wall in my office. 
Uh, it's a famous one in Jeremiah 17, verse 7 through 8. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. This is the image of a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the image of living faith. This is the image of a act, an active faith, a faith that produces deeds, that produces fruit. And what is the key? We have to get our roots into the right stream. That is our focus. And through that, we will see the fruit in our lives. A tree can be a tree's fruit, a tree's leaves do not provide it with life. They are an, they are a, an evidence of that life that's within. When the tree has life, it produces green leaves. It produces good fruit. This is where we need to be centered, focused on Christ. I'll invite the band to come back up. And today I want to invite you guys, if you're challenged by this, if you're encouraged by this, as we're doing, going through the last song together, I want to encourage you to take time and to go to Christ. Maybe you're saying, I don't know, I don't know if, I, if I've done enough. I don't know if I, I have this fruit. I don't, I don't know if I have the, the deeds again. I want you to just look at it from the other angle. Cling to Christ. Cling to Him. Go to Him, expressing your need for Him. And in that, He produces the life the fruit within us. And if you need prayer today, if you want to talk or pray about this, I'll be up here at the front during the last song and after the service, and I'd be happy to pray with any of you. But the rest of us, let's worship God together.